I know, I'm such a dork. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that knows that the thing that makes a prosimian a prosimian is the fact that it gets paid to do its simianing. The Rasafari Podcast. And if you're still listening after that intro joke, then I salute you. So yeah, yeah, it's time for another episode of the Rasafari Podcast. We have a really cool interview coming up, uh, and I just want to get right to it. So a couple of things real quick. First of all, don't forget that you can support the pod by going to patreon.com slash Rasafari. We have a website, which is basically what you would expect from a podcast website. There's like merch, and you can listen to the podcast and read stuff that I wrote you know, a year and a half ago when I started this thing and haven't looked at since. So probably is still relevant. You know, it's rossafari.com, but you should go check out the merch because it's really cool. And make sure you're following along on the social medias at rossafari or on TikTok at rossafari pod. Although let's be honest, I've basically abandoned TikTok. Sorry, friends. But uh, enough about all of that. Today, we are going to be talking to Dr. Lydia Green, a research scientist at the Duke Lemur Center. Now, I don't know if you know what the Duke Lemur Center is, but oh, it is it is magical. I love all of the places that we talk about on this podcast because I book my own guests and why would I book a guest at a place that I don't like? But y'all, this is a very different and very unique facility. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to let the the interview explain why but um you're in for a treat not just because the Duke Lemur Center is incredible but because Lydia is just an awesome human this conversation goes all over the place we talk about super minute details about things like a gut microbiome of a shefoc and then all kinds of stuff like LGBTQ plus representation in the STEM community and um, how sometimes being in the arts is hard. Like this one is just all over the place and I cannot wait to share it with you. Um, I could have talked to Lydia for days. Oh, and if you don't recognize the name Dr. Lydia Green, you may recognize her Instagram handle. Lydia runs at Lemur Scientist. And if you haven't checked out her page yet, go now. She takes such amazing pictures of the lemurs that she gets to hang out with, a lot of which are she-fox, which are real, real cute, y'all. Um, and it's just, it's such a good page. Uh, Lydia uses it not just to show off these adorable pictures, but also to educate and to encourage and to help people find their way into careers in STEM. And um, 
I love it. I, I I mentioned this in the interview, but I actually got a little nervous reaching out to Lydia because I was like, "Ooh, I hope she likes me. I hope that she will validate me by being on my podcast. And she did. So uh, that's really cool. So I'm going to play a quick ad and then we'll get to the interview. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, y'all. I had so much fun during this interview. You're going to hear it, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy all of it, too. So without further ado, sit back, relax, or I don't know, maybe maybe you're driving, so please don't do that. Don't die. But do whatever you need to do to give your full attention to Dr. Lydia Green of the Duke Lemur Center. So uh, why don't we start off? Tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. Yeah, my name is Lydia Green. I am a postdoctoral fellow or really a research scientist at the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. And I study lemurs using non-invasive science to try to just better understand our primate cousins um, and their lives in Madagascar. I, I love the Duke Lemur Center. So much. Yay! Um, I've only been there once. It's always nice to meet people who know about us. I know, right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story. Um, You know, the uh, I was on tour and I was playing uh, Durham, the D Pack down there. Yeah. And uh, when I got there, I started like looking for you know zooey type things or whatever, and I found the Duke Lemur Center. And being myself and paying no attention to life, I grabbed an Uber and shot to the Duke Lemur Center. Yeah. And um, they were afraid to drive up the the last part of the hill because yep. they didn't know if it was like legal or not. So I just yep. hiked up there. And I get there, and the lady at the front desk was like, hey, do you have a reservation? And I was like, nope, but I'd like to see stuff. And she was like, you can't come in without a reservation. True. And I was like, Cool. But so here's the story. I'm in town on this tour. I just took like a $40 Uber to get here and I'm going to take a $40 Uber back. Can I, can I just see, so, like, is there any way, can I make a reservation now for later today? Like I'm yeah. so on board. To, and the lady's like, no. Yeah. That's, cool. It unfortunately happens. Um, it does. It does. But I got lucky. This, this woman that was there also for a tour came up to me and was like, my husband couldn't come today. Can oh. he use his husband pass? for a day. And so I got to be husband for the, the day and I got to go on the tour and it was amazing. I yeah. love it there. I'm glad that worked out. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. That does happen more often than, than we would like it to. We do have a lot of information on our website that tours are 
reservation only. Um, and that's in part because we are not strictly a zoo. We're actually a non-invasive research center. Um, and so we do offer a really, really great educational package. There's a lot of awesome tours you can take, and we have very knowledgeable education staff. But because you never know if there's going to be a research project going on, um, we don't let visitors wander around without a guide. Um, and actually, it's a better experience when you wander around with one of our educational docents because they really know what they're talking about. Um, so it's a much oh, yeah. better experience for everybody. Oh, yeah. It was so cool. And I, for the record, this was completely my fault. I didn't even go to y'all's website. I yeah. literally, I, I hopped on, you know, my Maps app and I put yeah. in like Zoo and it popped up and I was like, oh my God, I love lemurs. Let's go. Never yeah. even check. I didn't even like check the hours. You guys could have been closed that day. I had no yeah. Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll do a, a drop. Our website is lemur.duke.edu. Um, so for everyone who's not been to our website before, there's a lot of adorable pictures of lemurs. Yes, yes. And uh, it is it is well worth checking out, especially if you don't want to show up and not get to see lemurs. Uh, but especially I got now with COVID, I would say definitely check up if we're if we're doing tours at any given time. Yeah, I was going to say, I know that uh, right now you're you're pretty much locked down, aren't you? Because mm-hmm. we, we talked about doing this in person and yeah. I would have made the drive, but that was not going to happen with the Omicron stuff going yep. on right now. Yeah, so winter is harder just in terms of the animals being outdoors. And we're right now um, only facilitating tours when the animals are really outdoors and we can be very comfortable about their their level of safety. Um, so with winter, our animals aren't really out in the forest very much right now. And it's just a bit harder to make sure that we keep that distance and that, you know, we make sure we're not passing anything to the animals. So once spring opens back up again and those temperatures get warmer in North Carolina, I'm sure our education department would be very happy to accommodate um, all of your listeners if they make a reservation. <laughs> and I'm I'm coming. I'm coming and we're gonna we're gonna finally meet in person because Yeah. 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 All right. We can so, do a follow up. We can do a, you know, Lemur Podcast part two. Oh, absolutely we can. Um very cool. So let's uh let's explain what the the Duke Lemur Center is because you mentioned that it's lemur.duke.edu. Mm-hmm. And so People probably know, if, if for no other reason than basketball, that Duke is a university. Yes. Um, so what, what is the Duke Lemur Center? So we are a center with a trifocal mission of non-invasive research, lemur conservation, and visitor education. So we're not just one, one, focus, one focus pot. We have really have multiple foci going on at our center. Um, we were founded in the 1960s by two biology faculty. So the center has always had a mission of non-invasive research. And as the center has grown over the years, we've brought on an educational and conservation uh, missions as well. Um, but yeah, we really exist to facilitate non-harmful study of the diverse lemur species under our care uh, to try to make sure they don't go extinct in their natural habitats and to make sure that as many people as we can find and who are willing to listen to us uh, learn something about lemurs and why they're awesome. And was this just, I mean, it's a university. Why do they have a lemur? How did, do you know how this got started and stuff? Yeah. So the sort of legend goes um, that Dr. Peter Klopfer, who is a professor of biology, had some land out uh, in the Duke Forest where he was studying things like maternal bonding and social behavior and various deer and all sorts of other animals that would be endemic to North Carolina. And there was another faculty member at Yale, Dr. Butner Janich, also known as BJ. Um, And BJ had this sort of menagerie of primates up at Yale. And I think space was getting really limited. And BJ was looking for better opportunities for his primate colony. And he and Peter hit it off. 
and it was the 60s and NIH was doling out money and Duke had money and it was a lot easier. And so they brought the entire primate colony uh, down to Duke and they converted the sort of deer barn system into a lemur care system um, with some with some pilot money from NIH and from, from Duke. And I think the original colony had 93 animals. Um, not all of those were lemurs. I've heard a story about a baboon. Um, this is obviously before my time, as well as the time of, <laughs> of my current supervisors. Um, but through the years and through different directors, they launched trips to Madagascar with the aim of bringing as many species into captivity as possible to create a genetic safety net, um, but also so that we could begin studying these animals in, in captivity and learn more about them. Awesome. I love that. And it, it's really really amazing down there. Um, listeners, it's beautiful. It is. Like, I, I always say, like, you know, check out these places whenever they're open to the public. But um, Duke Lemur Center is is special, even among special places that we've we've talked about on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I wanted to to start off maybe here uh, with the actual animals by, by giving kind of an overview of lemurs. Now, I will tell you, uh, I went to the Lemur Conservation Foundation down oh, in, cool. in uh, Florida. Florida, yeah, uh, earlier this year. So, so many of my listeners have have an idea, but but as a quick refresher, you know, what is a lemur? So, lemurs are a group of 108 currently recognized species, as well as at least 17 now extinct species. Um, they're a group of primates that come only from the island of Madagascar, and specifically, they're a group of strepsirine primates, and strepsis and rhine coming from turning in and nose from the Greek, so that term strepsirine refers to the shape of the animal's nose and distinguishes them from the haplorines, so the other primates, your tarsiers, your monkeys, your apes, including humans. Um, so if you see an animal with a turned-in nose that's a primate, it's going to be a strepsirine, and it probably will be a lemur. Um, and so there are 108 species in Madagascar. They come from 15 different lineages, everything from your eye eyes to your shafak and your injury to your ring-tailed lemurs, your rough lemurs, your mouse and your dwarf lemurs, um, your sportive lemurs. There's just a really great diversity of species all in this one island. And it's really because of serendipity that we have this incredible natural experiment that Earth has given us to study. Yeah. Madagascar seems like such an amazing place. Yeah. And you have been there. Yeah. Yep, oh, I have. I'm so jealous of you. Yeah, I'm, so I'm really, really lucky. Um, I started, my first trip was in 2014, which was my first year of my PhD. And then I ended up writing most of my PhD while living with my now wife in Madagascar. Um, she was based over there at the time and I was just writing. And so I just ended up hanging out with her for the better part of a couple of years to write. Um, and that was a pretty amazing experience. Um, and she's got much more experience on the island than I have. So I've really been learning through her um, how to navigate the island, you know, what's possible, what's really impossible, um, what's impossible, but actually possible. Um, <laughs> so it's been a real good education, um, both through my PhD, but also through my experiences with my wife. That's really cool. And uh, there are just, there are so many things that you're talking about that I want to delve into further. <laughs> um, and I'm very excited about all of them. But for now, we're going to stick with lemurs at yep. DLC. Um, so what kind of lemurs do you work with there? So I work mostly with our shafaks, our cockerel shafak colony, because they're the best. 
Um, and I'm not biased at all. That's just an <laughs> honest scientific opinion. Um, but I also work quite a bit with our dwarf lemurs. Um, we have Chirogalius medius, the fat-tailed dwarf lemur, and my wife, Marina Blanco, runs our dwarf lemur hibernation project. So I assist her quite a bit on that. Um, and then I'll often study ring-tailed lemurs and rough lemurs or brown lemurs as they serve as a comparison to the shafox because they're really quite different. Um, but one of the benefits, of course, of working with animals um, at a captive facility is that you can control for so many environmental variables. And so I can really study shafox and ring-tailed lemurs or rough lemurs in a, in a comparative way. So I work with pretty much most of the species we have, but probably the least with the eyes. That's a bummer because eyes are cool. Yeah, they're amazing. They're just so different from everything. And I really love comparative research and they're just weird and hard to make things that it's hard to design projects that they can't like destroy the task you've given them or yeah, but they're, they're a fascinating out group for everything. That's awesome. So um, what kind of research are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm so intrigued by all of this nerdy science stuff. Yeah, yeah you picked the right nerd, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I am an ecologist. I guess that's how I define myself. So I'm really interested in understanding how lemurs exist within the context of their environment. And most of my dissertation work and much of my work still today is looking at nutrition and the gut microbiome. And specifically in the Shafak, um, because they're a leaf-eating species or a folivore, and so they have this incredibly elongated gastrointestinal tract and a really specialized microbiome that facilitates the ability to break down leaves and turn those leaves into energy. And so I just sort of got fascinated by this symbiosis between the animal and the microbes in the gut and the diet and what that means for living in a very seasonal or stochastic environment. What if you're living in an environment where there's just not food um, when you need it or food that you can depend on? And is it possible that the microbiome actually contributes to adaptation um, in terms of what you're eating in your environment? So a lot of my work is still focused on this question of microbial evolution within the context of filibri, um, but I also work quite a lot with health, um, trying to understand how to keep our animals as healthy as possible using microbiome science, um, and then trying to better study our animals under our care at the lemur center relative to their wild counterparts and seeing how our animals are different, how they're the same. Um, so truly really trying to understand sort of the breadth of Shafak ecology and the various places that they, that they call home. Cool. I understood almost two thirds of those words. Oh my God. Uh, no, that's, that's a pretty good percentage for me. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah. No, um, but that's so, all right. So, um, but seriously, let's break it down a little bit though. Okay. So when you say microbiome, Yep. Um, you're, you're referring to the literal small biology in, yep. in the gut, correct? Yep. And That's those exactly are it. microorganisms, right? Yep. So there are various types of microorganisms in the gut. I work most with bacteria and that's frankly, because sequencing them is the easiest and I don't really consider myself much of a lab rat. Um, so there are excellent standardized methods out there for sequencing bacteria in poop. Um, and so that is, yeah, it sounds glamorous. Yes, I studied the microbiome in the context of nutrition, but really I'm a glorified poop scooper. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's, I mostly work with bacteria. Okay. So how much of an average day is spent with, you know, lemurs and how much is spent uh, analyzing poop? It really depends. And I guess that's something I love about my job is that every day is different and every season can be different. So if I'm in the middle of an experiment or a study where I'm, you know, collecting samples from the animals within a time frame, I'll be every day with the animals, mostly looking at their butts, not so much at the faces. Um, 
So I'll be with them, you know, for most of the day, there's definitely a circadian rhythm to when you can get samples. And so you tune into that pretty quickly to know when your sort of prime windows of observation should be. Um, But then usually I'll go through a phase of sample collection and then I'll go through a phase of lab work. And usually I procrastinate the lab work until like the last minute. Um, I find many emails to answer in between there somehow. (laughs) Um, and then after the lab phase, you'll ship out the DNA for sequencing analysis, usually at a national facility, um, because their methods are really standardized. Um, and then I'll have a bunch of time spent on the computer. Um, so I think, especially from my Instagram, people think that I spend my entire life like out in the forest with the animals taking photographs. But the reality is probably most of my life is spent behind the computer typing about them. That makes sense. And yeah, your Instagram, uh, for people that don't know, uh, Lydia has at lemur scientist on yes. Instagram and it is a hell of a follow. Oh, um, thank you. I mean, I, how could I not love those pictures? They're um, amazing animals. They're amazing animals. And you're a really good photographer. Oh, um, thank you. Is a lot of that just like, are you using like a good camera or are you just like, is this our cell phones at this point? This is my iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, I mean, 90% of the Ross Safari photos are iPhone photos and I have a nice camera yep. and I still get better pics on my iPhone. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I have a nice camera. I just often forget it or I'm too lazy to carry it. Yep. So I guess one thing I should explain about the Duke Lemur Center is that we actually sit on like 80 acres of land and we let our lemurs free range out in big chunks of the Duke Forest. So many of our animals will have access to upwards of four, five, six, even, you know, 14 acres of Duke Forest that they can roam in. So a lot of my science, you know, we joke about like collecting poop, but a lot of my science is actually following these animals out in the forest, documenting what they're eating, documenting what the microbiome is as a consequence of what they're eating, um, comparing different species. And so a lot of the photos are from out in, in those forest enclosures. And that's really something that sets us apart from most of the animal care community um, is really our, our ability to manage animals out in the woods. Yeah, and that's something that they do down in Florida as well yep. at, at Lemur, Conser- uh, Lemur Conservation Foundation. I can usually speak better than this. Um, and uh, I, I got to go into those free-range forests and... Oh, what an experience. That yeah, is. it's pretty that amazing. That is really cool. Yeah. Um, and, you know, since we're talking about Instagram, I I have a question for you. Now, I noticed something. Your Instagram is full of pictures of lemurs mm-hmm. with the occasional picture of a human or two, named mainly you and, and your wife. Yep. But there are never pictures of you and lemurs or lemurs sitting on your head or lemurs dressed as, you know, sailors. Um, and I thought that it would be cool to have you talk about that a little bit because, uh, there's a, there's a problem, uh, in, in primate conservation right now. And, and rather than me prattle on about it, I thought I'd let an expert do it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, what I would say is that we all love animals and so we want to interact with the animals, but what's best for the animal is not necessarily what we want. What's best for the animal is for them to just go on and live their lives, And so the way I try to explain it to people is that lemurs are wild animals. Even if they're living under captive conditions, this is still a wild animal with all of its wild instincts. And we want to keep those instincts intact, um, especially if you want to study those animals or if we eventually want to send them back to their natural habitat to repopulate areas that are now devoid of the species. And so we want animals to retain their wildness. It is 
impossible to domesticate an individual wild animal by bringing it into your home, by petting it, by feeding it table scraps. It is impossible to take to domesticate an individual. And that is because domestication is a process that takes breeding over thousands of generations from wolves to dogs or from whatever the ancestor of, you know, horses that we currently ride come from. I'm really not like a horse biologist. So I apologize to all the equine people out there who are like currently yelling at their screens. (laughs) But domestication is this long process that takes to really select for the traits that allow animals to live alongside us and, and want to live alongside us. And that has not happened with lemurs and will not be happening with lemurs over the span of an individual's lifetime. So what we can do with wild animals under human care is we can habituate them. We can get them used to us being around. So they're not scared of us. Um, but usually we would recommend habituating without contact. Um, we don't want the animals interacting with us. We don't want them jumping on us. We don't want them touching us. We want the animals to be interacting with their own kin in their own social groups, the way they would in Madagascar. We want to retain those natural behaviors. We want to retain instincts. And we just want to make sure that they're comfortable with us watching them from a safe distance, especially now with COVID, watch them from a safe distance so that they can just be them and you can really experience them being them. So it's really not good for the animal to live in your house. It's really not good for the animal to want um, to interact with you. Usually if they want to touch you, it's because they've been trained, they're going to get food to do that. Um, So it's not that the animal necessarily wants attention. It wants a treat. Um, And so we really, we're really focused on maintaining natural behaviors and natural instincts. Um, And, you know, I, I think for us, we are a hands-off facility unless there is a medical reason or a training reason to have hands-on hands on the animals. Um, and that extends to research projects too, unless there is a very, very good justifiable reason to have hands on the animals. We are a hands-off facility. That was a bit of a ramble. No, that was really good. No, that was was really good, honestly. That's really important for people to understand. And, you know, another problem, um, and I think this is probably less lemurs and more chimps and stuff, but is that um, there's so much stuff online now of people, like I said, like dressing up primates as little humans and like, you know, stuff like that, that it makes people think that's okay. And I know a lot of people who love these species, who truly are passionate in their their love of, of primates. That love them in part because of that, but that isn't what a primate is, and it actually creates, uh, you know, uh, more more cause for the illegal pet trade and and all that kind of stuff. Um, And so it really it really is a problem. Uh, So I I appreciate the fact that you know your photos are not that. I think that's important. Yeah, and I you know I even I think in the beginning, I was more willing to post photos of myself touching animals in a research context. Like, you know, I have gloves on. It's clear that we're putting a collar on this animal or that we're following this animal. Or, But I think there's such a potential for people to misunderstand what it is that I've just sort of made the decision from now on. I really won't post pictures of myself touching lemurs, even if I have an, an ethical and approved reason to do so. Um, so that's just conscious choice. But I'll also say it's really a lot easier to get good photos of lemurs at the lemur center than it is in Madagascar. So I understand why a lot of my colleagues, you know, the, probably the only photos they may have of some of their species close up would be if they're in a research context close to the human. So our lemurs at the lemur center are so well habituated to people. They spent their lives around people. And also because we don't touch them unnecessarily, they really trust us. Um, so they know we're not going to invade their space more than they want. We really respect their, I don't know, you can't call it personal space if it's a lemur, but we respect their lemur space. Um, and so they really allow f- photographs to be taken in a way that I imagine a lot of other places, the lemurs would be a little bit more sensitive 
So uh, that's really cool, and thanks for the uh, the you know the the, the hints the on soapbox. how to do better. <laughs> yes, the soapbox exactly. But the ask for and appreciated soapbox that that was very good. Um, and so uh, tell me more about what you've found and what your research is finding, and and how how this applies to Madagascar. Yeah, so I guess a lot of my sort of like early research. I'm, I only graduated from my PhD a couple of years ago, so like it's all early. But um, some of the early stuff from my PhD was really looking at how the microbiome responds to changes in the animal's diets. Um, So if they're getting a more diverse array of leaves or a less diverse array of leaves, does that shift the microbiome? Does the microbiome respond and cope to this dietary change? Um, Which the answer is yes, it does. And for the Shafox, their gut microbes can actually change in, you know, two days. Um, So basically the length of their gastrointestinal tract is how quickly the microbiome can change in response to a dietary shift. Um, A lot of the then work I did in Madagascar was looking at more at differences across seasons, across habitats, across species, and it all differs. Um, so basically the microbiome differs in every which way you can slice it. But what we see is that the microbiome is structured broadly based on what type of animal you are. So all Shafak, regardless of where they live in Madagascar, whether they're a rainforest species, a dry forest species, a spiny desert species, whether it's the rainy season or the dry season, whether they're a kid or an old animal, Shafak have a microbiome that looks like a Shafak. And you can't confuse their microbiome for the rough lemurs that live next door or the brown lemurs that live down the street. They look like a Shafak. But within the Shafak, you can see that the microbiome of the species that live in different habitats differs, but all in all, they still look like a Shafak. So we have this big structuring by who you are. And then within the who you are, we have structuring by what you're eating, where you're living, how you're doing, who you, you know, what age you are, what gender, sex you are, can't call it gender and lemurs, what sex you are. Um, so yeah, we see structuring at different levels and, and, um, based on different parameters of the animals. So that was sort of a lot of my dissertation was trying to figure out where is their variation in the microbiomes of these animals and how does that variation parse based on different features of the animals. Um, And a lot of my more recent work, especially since COVID hit and I haven't been able to go to Madagascar, um, has been focused very much on our Shafak colony at the Lemur Center, trying to understand like what they're doing in our forest enclosures? How many plants are they eating out there? How are they adapting to a North Carolinian diet compared to the diet that they'd be eating in the dry forest? Do they track uh, seasonal variation in plant availability the way they would in the wild in a captive setting? Um, And the answer is they do. They find acorns in the acorn season and they find fruits and flowers in the fruiting and flowering season. So they're, they're really smart animals despite having been kept in captivity for, you know, two to six generations. They still know exactly what to do out in the forest. So that's been a lot of my recent work is really trying to figure out what, what our, what is the range of variation in our, in our current colony. Um, and I think that's pretty fun to watch them eat leaves all day. So you get so excited when you talk. I know about I'm such stuff. a dork. <laughs> you are such a dork, but I love it because we're all dorks here. That's, that's and I'm here to like tell the kids that it's fine to be a dork. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, that is that is one of the goals of the podcast. I've never yeah. phrased it that way before, but it really is. It's and hundred percent okay to be a dork. Yes, and y'all, I wish you could have seen her face. <laughs> like Lydia lit up during yeah. all of that. That was genuinely hilarious, but also really cool and informative. Um, it's yeah, it's just. I mean, I think like once you see them, like you know, at twilight with the sun setting, like up in the trees, like throwing acorn shells on your head, just spending (laughs) hours up there, like not caring about the humans below them, just doing their thing. It's really quite, 
quite magical. My wife calls it like field work in quotes because it's like, you know, there's a building pretty close. There's like a bathroom that works really well. At the end of the day, I'm going to go home and get like takeout on the way home and <laughs> shower and sleep in my own bed. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's very magical to, to be sort of the only one on grounds. The animals just are out doing their thing, you know, 10 acres away from the building. And it's, it's really magical. I love that so much. And so you have mentioned your wife multiple times now. Because she's amazing. Well, that's that's a good reason. Um, <laughs> and all right, so maybe we should just cut this interview short and I should interview her. Um, you should. That would you, be fun. You actually, I mean, I'll, I can speak a little bit on behalf of her, but she is like fascinating to talk to. And I would say like 60% of how I understand lemurs has been shaped by, by her vast experience. Um, and so it's, yeah. Well, great. We can do that, too, because, I mean, I can talk lemurs a lot. That sounds awesome. But I, I have to ask the the less scientific question. Yeah. But so y'all are married. We are. And y'all are both at the Duke Lemur Center. We are. Is there a meet cute in here? And does it involve lemurs and, like, something adorable? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's adorable. But um, <laughs> your readership might be like, oh, my God. Um and by readership, I mean, like, listenership. This is a podcast. I sound like like I'm, like, 80 years old. I mean, that's, like, all of the technology stuff. Like, I always, every week when I put up, hey, new episode, I'm like, tune in now. Because, right. that, you know, what, what <laughs> does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> Roll down those windows. Yeah, so... Um, I, so my wife's name is Marina Blanco, um, and she is one of the world's leading experts on hibernation in primates, especially in our dwarf lemurs. And I didn't know any of that when I first met her, of course, um, cause I was I a naive. Did. You did? Know. No, 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 no. I, I, I didn't want to cut you off. No, I oh, didn't no, no, no. even know that they, um, hibernated. hibernate. No. Oh yeah. We can have like a whole segue in hibernation cause it's the most fascinating thing after Shafak nutrition ever. <laughs> um, and not that we have teams in our house. It's not like there's team Shafak or team Cairo, which there is. Um, but yeah, so I was a first year grad student first semester and I got very fortunately invited to go on a, a field mission with a team that was studying a bunch of different filivorous lemurs at a site in Eastern Madagascar. And I was sort of like just going, having no idea what was, what was happening, just like sort of bought plane tickets, packed tubes in a suitcase and left. And we were in Antananarive, the capital of Madagascar, shorthand Tana, um, and these sort of like people walked over and they were like, oh yeah, they're part of the team. And among them was this Argentinian, uh, Marina Blanco. And I at first thought she was Malagasy, which is pretty embarrassing. She was sitting amongst a, a group of Malagasy, but she's from Argentina and was living in the U.S. and was a postdoc at the Lemur Center. And she was brought on that trip to study the dwarf lemurs at the site, whereas I was on the team that was studying the bigger diurnal Shafak and injury. Um, so I had no idea she was going to be there. She had no idea I was going to be there. I was still in the closet at the time, but she knew. Um, and so two years later, when I had finally come out to myself, um, I ran into her again in a different part of Madagascar, just through serendipity. And I was sort of going through a lot of emotions at that point. I'd really just come out about a month or two beforehand. And she was so supportive and so easy to talk to. And like, I think like, I don't know, three months later we were engaged or something. Um, that's adorable. And that's yeah. really cool. It might've been like five months. She's going to like, listen to this and be like, stop lying. <laughs> In a small period of time, y'all yeah. were engaged. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool. Very, very interesting. Um, I can't imagine doing all of that in Madagascar. It must be, I mean, so I've never been to Madagascar, shockingly. And um, I'm, I'm curious, is it a very romantic setting? 
Um, I think probably a lot of it is. I think sleeping in a tent with little access to running water or bathroom infrastructure and clothes you haven't washed in a few weeks is probably not the most romantic setup that one could find. But I think also we figured out, figured out pretty quickly, like what things matter to us and what things don't. And certainly sleeping in grungy clothes next to each other was totally fine with both of us. Um, so I guess you could say we, we figured out our limits and our comfort zones pretty quickly. She's definitely <laughs> like, she's definitely the more adventurous and the more like, I guess, tolerant in terms of field work than I am. And I'm slightly more of the comfort seeker, I guess, I'm working on toughening up, um, and living up to her, her reputation, but yeah, she's, she's really tough. Wow. That, ah, all of this is so cool. Um, and it brings up another interesting question though, which is, um, you know, I'm curious, what is the, uh, what is your experience with like being LGBTQ in the scientific community? Does it matter? Has it impacted things? You know, tell me what that's like. Yeah, I think I got really lucky because I didn't come out to myself until I was 28. And so I already had, you know, a support system within the scientific community. I was already midway through my PhD. And so I think sort of people knew me first already as a scientist and not as like that lesbian over there. So I got really lucky in that I got to find, I got to define who I was outside of my orientation um, before I came out to myself. And so coming out later, I think really afforded me that ability to like not define myself as one thing. Um, it, I think we have an easier time being women um, than maybe gay men would have in the field because it's not weird for us to share a tent, I think. Um, but I've also been really surprised at our friends in Madagascar who really don't care. Honestly, they're, they're happy for us. Um, it doesn't bother them at all. I've had more negative, um, uh, negative interaction with folks in the U.S. than I have in Madagascar about my orientation. Um, so I've been really, really fortunate in my experiences. My workplace is really supportive of us. Um, and so that's been, it's been really, really actually easy, I think, um, just in part because I came out so late and I have a wonderfully supportive family and wonderfully supportive friends. So um, I feel really lucky. And I, I think that's also part of the reason that I'm able to be out on social media and advocate for um, just visibility for LGBTQ plus community in STEM and not have that be something that, that weighs me down because I've been so supported. That makes a ton of sense. And um, I always find, I, I like to say that, you know, I, I'm cis, white, straight, all of the things that you're, quote, supposed to be. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I struggle with how, how I can help in that way. And I hope that at least, at the very least, bringing forward voices of people who, who haven't always had that experience is, is something that I can do. So, you know. Yeah, I think for me, recognizing that that is one piece of who I am, but that it, that's not how I define myself first and foremost, right? I define myself as an ecologist, as a conservationist, um, as somebody who works with lemurs, who studies them, you know, as I would describe myself as a wife, I think before I would describe myself as gay. Um, so that's just, it's, it's one of many dynamic features that, that constitutes who I am. And it's not the thing I have to lead with if I don't choose to. Yeah, makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I think the world needs to be more like that because, you know, I have never, in my entire life had to lead with the fact that I am straight. Right. 
you know, or whatever, or, or you know, like whatever. That has never been, you know, um, uh, when when I was growing up, uh, when you would tell a story about a person, you would you would say what their color was, unless they were white, and then you would just say this person right, right. and uh and i have so been learning about not doing all of that and i think um you know saying you don't have to lead with that is such a great way to phrase that i, I like that the default can be you know i mean i'm also really lucky in that i'm passing um and so people wouldn't make assumptions i think about my i think people, i think the assumption would be that i'm straight if anyone just ran into me and didn't know me um so i'm also very fortunate and in a sense that i can hide behind that mask um whereas a lot of others don't have that that privilege so i do recognize that but i think also you know just be who you want and define yourself as you as you want and if other people don't like it then don't talk to them. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. I love that. It's good advice. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we kind of skipped over because I'm just so into the current nerdiness of all of this, but what is your history? Tell me <laughs> about how you got here and what the hell made a young woman decide that <laughs> lemur gut biomes were the dream? Yeah, I uh, I was not that kid that knew from a young age I was going to like study wildlife. I was not counting ants in my parents' backyard that just like I grew up in the concrete jungle of New York City and I trained really hard to be a professional ballet dancer all through high school. And I even shortly joined a company after I graduated from high school. And so that was what I had put on my own cards um, was going to be my life as a professional dancer. And it didn't work out for reasons that could be a whole other podcast. Um, but I ended up moving back home for a year, sort of really going through quite a lot of processing. And then I matriculated to college. My mother had insisted that I apply to college and I'm very grateful she did. So if you're listening to this Judy Green, shout out. Um, and so I had a deferral from Duke University and very, very, very lucky to have had that. And so I started my freshman year of college having no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I liked animals. So I signed up for anthropology classes because that made sense. And they were like, here are some bones. And I was like, interesting. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea that the lemur center existed. Um, so I needed a work study job and I went to the job fair and at one of the booths, they were, the lemur center was recruiting tour guides. So they had this like life-size stuffed animal shafak. And I like walked over to that table instead of the table with the books on it. And I was like, what is this? And they said, it's a lemur. And I was like, what's a lemur? And they were like, we're recruiting tour guides. And I was like, sign me up. Um, so that's, I sort of, it was really, it's a story of serendipity. I sort of fell into anthropology and I fell into a work study job at the lemur center. And I just, I think lemurs replaced in my life, the passion that I had had for ballet. And I just sort of got really into it really quickly and joined a lab on campus studying female dominance. And, you know, a couple of years later, I was writing my senior thesis on factory communication, scent marking, and ended up doing my PhD, um, on lemurs and, I don't know. I guess I full circle would be that like a lot of my struggles in dance had to do with food and weight and nutrition. And so studying nutrition in a primate, but not a human and trying to understand really mechanisms of nutrition and the microbiome as a mechanism that enables animals to make fuel out of their food, I think really attracted me to that topic. And also it seemed easy to collect poop <laughs> and possible. Um, oh man, I feel like um you and I could talk for like 
a month because there are yeah, so many I talk things. A lot. Well, but just 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 being in the arts, like you said, yeah. is so yeah. hard. And 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 having that passion and being totally focused on it, and then suddenly realizing there are other things that you can be passionate about or are yeah. passionate about in the world is something that I've been going through recently you know um it's very scary also to feel like you know your whole you put so much work into this one career that just fell apart so quickly and to think that maybe you're not good at anything else and maybe there's nothing else in the world that's going to excite you and just not knowing what you're going to do and sort of going to college because I couldn't think of anything else to do and I knew I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing and it was I mean it was really scary at age 19 I can't imagine for for folks who are now you know our age to to have to make that leap of faith I think is is pretty scary yeah, I mean, I'm literally like, I'm not going to go, this isn't a podcast about me, but I am going through so much of that with drumming right now. It, yeah. It's it's not a, a, a physical thing. It's just a finding this other passion that I have, which Rasafari is a part of and just other things in my life. And drumming was all I cared about for yeah. much of my life. Yeah. Um, And now it's not. And that's scary, but like in a cool way. But yep. still scary. Yeah. Um, and then I've also had a lot of struggles with with nutrition, um, probably in a very, very different way than what you've experienced. But also that stuff's all kind of the same, even yep. if it looks different. Um, I've had a ton of issues in my life dealing with that. And I still have a really – I'm working hard to get in a better place mentally about yeah. it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like I, I can relate very much to everything that you just said. And I think, I think there's a lot of people that transition actually from the arts, especially like the more physical arts where maybe you can't do that into your seventies. I see a lot of my friends transitioning actually over into STEM fields. And when I was a kid and I was dancing, it's not like they ever explained these sort of alternate career paths. It was just sort of like the kids that made it and the kids that failed. And so I went into college very much thinking that I was one of the students who had failed. I had failed to make it as a dancer and um, I carried that burden with me for a long time. Um, and I think really it was only until I started gaining the confidence that my wife helped me build through our partnership that I've sort of been able to put that behind me. And, and actually I, I have a much better relationship with food now. Um, all these years later, I think in part because I've been able to take distance and process. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. That's, Thank that's you. very cool. Yeah. And, um, again, going back to the wife, uh, y'all got married at the Duke Lemur Center, didn't we you? We did. Oh, that's so cool. I know. We're such dorks. Um, <laughs> so at the time, I was still a PhD student, and it was not clear that we were going to end up with the jobs that we have now when we're both staff scientists. And so we weren't really sure what the future held at that point. I think the end of your PhD is always a scary time um, for students and just not knowing what's next, but knowing you need to find something. Um, so we sort of knew we wanted to get married at the Lemur Center, if for no other reason than to put a bookend on that experience there. And our former director, Ann Yoder, who's a really important mentor for both of us and who we're still very close with, and we both have affiliate uh, appointments in her lab, um, Ann actually performed the ceremony Um so, yeah. And, and, you know, we really wanted to make sure that it was an inclusive ceremony that didn't have any of the sort of like, I don't know, traditional things that were going to be awkward. And we thought screaming rough lemurs around us sounds right up our alley. I was going to say, that's what I care about. I mean, that's very yeah. cool that you got married and all that stuff. But my question is, how did the lemurs react? I mean, I know they didn't know it was a wedding, but like, that's got to be an out of the ordinary situation for them. 
Yeah, no, they're actually really good with people as long as people respect their distance. So we did not do the ceremony out in the forest. We did it just around our normal summer tour path. Um, and we had a lot of our educational docents actually volunteered to pitch in and, and sort of also inform our, our family and friends who were from out of town about the animals so that we weren't like running around the whole time being like, yes, this is Gertrude. This is Remus. This is... Um, so that was really nice. Um, and yeah, the lemurs are, we do open house tours. So we'll allow a number of guests on, on site at a time, as long as we have the educational docents spread out. Um, so they're, they're used to people. Um, and again, going back to the fact that the people that come to the lemur center respect the animals. And so then the animals respect us. I mean, definitely there's like, you know, roughly we're screaming all the time. You can't, that's just, you know, that's just who they are. And yeah, that's what them, they do. We want to let them be them. Um, <laughs> we don't want to stifle that. Um, so that's always nice when they interrupt with a chorus. <laughs> that is uh, it's the new processional music. Adorable. I love it. That is so great. That is so good. Um, very cool. And so you mentioned names. So, you know, I, I know there's some debate in the community and in science in general about, you know, when you're studying an animal, do you name it or should it be XR74? And you have opinions. So I really tell me, just give them their names. (laughs) The animals don't know their names. I personally, I have a really a hard time in mining the historical data when the numbers are listed as SR4210. Those numbers all start to look the same to me. And so if I'm mining data and I can categorize them by Gertrude versus Remus, that's a lot easier for me to keep track of and make fewer mistakes. So I find that helpful just from like a housekeeping perspective. But I also think this idea that scientists are like, totally objective and stoic and don't have any emotional attachment to the things that they're studying and it's all numbers. And that has just not been my experience. And given how much my wife talks about the dwarf lemurs, that's also not her experience. She feels very attached to Sandpiper in particular. Um, So I think we are able to objectively study animals and collect data on them, but still recognize them as individuals. And I can split that part of my brain. I can recognize Gertrude's personality and what she brings to the table, which is a lot of spunkiness. Um, But I can also collect data on Gertrude in a very consistent manner that I would collect data on Bertha or Valeria. And I can recognize when, you know, my ability to anthropomorphize isn't helping the science or not. So I, I, it's science, all of the people in my generation that I've met who do lemur science give their animals names and use those names. And we are not only white lab coat objective snobs. <laughs> awesome. Um, so with the, um, with, with the animals that you take care of, who's your favorite? Um, did I mention Gertrude yet? I mean, I knew you were going to say Gertrude. You've, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you have mentioned, but tell me, tell me about Gertrude. Gertrude is just really spunky. She's on the smaller side, just in terms of stature, and she makes up for that with her larger-than-life attitude. And I, Gertrude, I think for me, is emblematic of sort of my like whole time at the Lemur Center because she was born early in my PhD. She's been in every study I've ever done on Shifox at the Lemur Center. I knew her mom and her dad really well. Her dad was the original Zabumafu lemur. That was it, Zabu. Oh, really? Her nice. dad was Jovian. Um, and Gertrude just has a lot of personality traits that I, I think, you know, I think she would survive in the wild. I think she's, she's pretty tough. Um, she doesn't let anyone boss her around and she wears the, the metaphorical pants at the center. Not that you can't wear a skirt and be in charge. Truth. 
Truth. Um, so with the uh, – w- w- what is – for people that are listening, it just occurred to me, um, you know, I've always known about Shafox because they have them at the Philly Zoo. And yep. so I've I've seen them a lot. Although I was told they're called Shefox, which is why I liked them originally. <laughs> and then I heard Shafok and I was like, okay, I'm fine with that too. Um, but uh, for people that don't, what is the difference between Shafox and like other lemurs? Why do they have such a different name? What, what, you know, can you describe that? Yeah. So Shefox, Shefaka, Sefaka, Sefok. There's a lot of different ways to pronounce it. The name but not probably, Shefox is what you're telling me. Yeah. I would maybe <laughs> avoid that one unless you're at a parlor party. Um, <laughs> the name is actually an automatopoeia of a vocalization that they make, which sounds like. Sh- <laughs> sh- <laughs> um, yes. I love when you look make so weird excited. noises on my podcast. That's so um, good. Yeah. So it's the, sh- <laughs> and that's how they got the name Shifaka. Um, And so we've, we keep that. I really love when the wildlife I work with are named after, you know, names that are important to the places that they come from. So I think it's wonderful to have a Malagasy name for the species that I study. Um, so we, we keep calling them Shifakas. They are incredibly different from most other lemurs. So their closest relatives are the injury and the woolly lemurs, but none of those species um, survive in captivity, at least today. None of them are kept in captivity. So in terms of the lemurs that uh, any visitor at an American zoo would see, the Shafox are really, really different looking just because there's nothing else like them under human care currently outside of Madagascar. So they're different in that they come from a different family within the lemurs. They're a member of the Andreidae family. And most of the lemurs that we know and love come from the Lemuridae family. So that would be your ring-tailed lemurs, your rough lemurs, all your different types of brown lemurs, the ones with the blue eyes, the one with the crowns on the heads, the one with the collars. So those all all of those lemurs come from one family called lemuridae. And so shafox come from a different family. And in terms of what they look like, shafox are vertically oriented instead of quadrupedal. So they don't run on all fours like your dog or your cat does. Uh, the ring-tailed lemur is a quadruped, but shafox are vertically oriented. And they use a locomotion style called vertical clinging and leaping or VCL if you want to seem fancy. And so the reason they use VCL is because they're living in the middle part of the canopy. So a lot of what they're doing is jumping from tree trunk to tree trunk. And so it really, really helps if you're vertical, if you're going to jump from vertical substrate to vertical substrate. And so they push off with their big back hind legs, rotate in the air, and then inbound on on the next tree, tree trunk. And their long back legs are so powerful that they can jump about 30 feet in a single bound. Um, although they don't really like to jump that far. If they were being chased by a predator, they could go for that. But they they have this amazing ability to leap um, and, and they're just mesmerizing to watch. They're so good at climbing. They're so good at hanging and they're really good at eating leaves. Awesome. Um, and yeah, and again, you could go to at lemur scientist on Instagram and see lots of Shafak pictures pictures and videos. Actually, one thing that I have done is, um, I have a second screen up here, my iPad, and Mm. I've literally, as we've been talking, just been scrolling your videos and pictures (laughs) as you talk because they're so So cute and I'm so distracted and that's so bad as an interviewer, but I went to look up like one specific thing and then I was just like, oh my gosh. And I just keep some of your, your, videos that are just like I've had on repeat it's really they're, adorable. they're amazing animals yeah they're just it's I wish that you know just a couple people could get as inspired by these animals as I have been just because the like fulfillment that they have brought to my life it's just something I wish I could share I think with everybody um everybody knows the ring lemur you know they like live everywhere and 
It's all over the U.S. There's a lot of them in zoos worldwide. They are very easy to take care of in captivity relative to, to other species. And so everyone's really familiar with them. And I always think that, like, you know, people should know more about Shafak. And certainly they should know more about the dwarf lemurs and hibernation. Well, so that's why, yeah, Marina and I are like big on the pump up for Team Shafak and Team Dwarf Lemur. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, yes, you are. And you've been using Instagram. Like, you've got a really good following. Um, yeah. And, and you you do all kinds of, you know, I'm, I'm watching and we're all kind of learning from each other on how to use Instagram to, to spread conservation messages and such. And um, I notice you do a lot of like when you have people ask you questions and stuff, you get a lot of responses. People seem really into what you're doing on there. They are. And I will also say, and maybe I'll regret this depending on how, if the following continues to grow, I actually try to answer every question people ask. Um, so I tend not to cherry pick what I want to answer, but I tr- tend to try to answer pretty much everything. Um so yeah, that might that might come back to bite me later if I <laughs> if I say that. But you, you can always change it. I I do yeah. too. But every once in a while, something comes up, and I'm just like, uh, yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, the reason that the the plat that I started on Instagram was actually because I'm currently a postdoc sponsored by the National Science Foundation, and as part of um, my job, I have to do what are called broader impacts, which means that my science can't just be in the service of science; it has to be in the service of society. And so I was thinking about all the things that I could do from a lemur science perspective that would be beneficial for the American public or the international public. And that was right around the time COVID hit. So I was thinking, what can I do from the comfort of my pajamas behind a screen? And I ended up um, putting a lot of effort into Instagram. And I really didn't know if it was going to grow, if people were going to be interested, you know, sort of the fear that the general public wants to see cute pictures of animals, but they don't necessarily want to learn that much about them. Um, I was sort of convinced that that wasn't the case. Um, and I sort of just wanted to, to see where it would go. And I've been so blown away by people's interest and enthusiasm for not just the photos, but the knowledge about the animals, I think it's been really um, breathtaking, actually. Yeah, um, people and I, go deep with you. Yeah, they I'm do. always amazed by it. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. And I think I also wasn't expecting to connect with so many students who are considering a career in wildlife biology or primatology. And there's so much like hidden knowledge in academia. Like, how do I know if I want to do a PhD or a master's? How do I find the right PhD program for myself? It's those sorts of questions. There is not an easy way necessarily to get answers from them. And I've been really inspired by a lot of the students that reach out and are sort of like, I think I might want to do this, but I just sort of need someone to talk to and you don't seem scary. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's just been really, really wonderful to, to meet sort of the generation behind us um, and see where, where their interests are and, and what they're doing. That's so cool. I love that so much. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I this podcast started as a COVID thing as well and trying to figure out how to, you know, like you said, stay in your do pajamas something. and do something. Yeah, yeah, um, that's that's very cool. Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, because we have around the same number of followers, but even so, like, watching your engagement be what it is, it, it felt a little bit like reaching out to a celebrity when I was reaching oh. out to you, honestly, which I know <laughs> well, is silly. No, I and know then you that, met I, me. Yeah, right, no, I know. Well, that's, I have people say that to me all the time, too. They're like, I've, I've listened to every episode of your podcast, some of them multiple times. And then like we chat and you're and just you're a big goober. And I'm like, yeah. yeah, but also if you listen to my podcast, I'm a big goober on there too. Like, yeah, but it did. I'm rarely like, I wouldn't use the word uncomfortable, but I'm rarely like, oh, I don't know about reaching out to this person, but I kind of was. 
And um, and friends, I'm going to tell y'all, she left me on red for a day. And I was like, oh, I see how it is. I see how it is. But then she responded and it has been lovely since. So, so I will say that the reason I did that was because I reached out to our director of communications. Um, so that was... And- and normally that's what I figure. Normally when yeah. I when I send an email or something to do this, it, it's going to take a day or two to even find out if somebody can. Yeah. Um, but again, because you're just, you're like cool on there. And I was all like, ah, all right, all right. well, I'll tell you that I am like a super anxious person. And so my immediate response when I get DMs is like to respond something really quickly. And then I have to remember that like, you know, if I need to check boxes or make sure that I'm okay to do something on behalf of the Lemur Center that I go through the hoops and not just like respond awkwardly. So I've, I've really been working on things like patience actually, and, and inhibition. Um, and yeah, I think sort of just my anxiety is like immediately like do something to, to, you know, cross it off my to-do list or something. So yeah, you were, you were a practice for me about, uh, patience. Well, good. I'm glad I could help. And honestly, it's, it's the same way for me. Like I said, with most things in life, I'm super patient. I'm actually a really patient person, but like when I send an email, when I'm hoping something will work out, when I want an interview, I just, I get like, it's not even that I'm nervous. It's that I, I still feel like an imposter a lot of the time. And I'm like, Oh, she's checking out my stuff and she just thinks I'm an idiot and she doesn't want to do this. And why would she want to be on my podcast and blah, blah, blah. And clearly that's so not who you are. And that's not what my podcast is. Like there's been a lot of cool stuff on here. It's, it's good. And I know that logically, but at the same time, there is that moment of like, Oh, but I'm, I'm learning to get over the imposter syndrome. It's funny because in the entertainment industry, you know, as a drummer where everyone has that, I don't have that. I believe right. that I've I've worked hard to get where I am and I've made the career and I'm I'm proud of who I who I've become in that world and I believe I deserve to be here. But um so then after finally getting comfortable in my own skin in that industry, I then immediately jumped into another thing where I get to to feel that way and yeah, feel yeah, nervous. No. I think the imposter syndrome in science doesn't really go away. You just like learn to recognize it and then not listen to it and that's something I've been practicing as well and you know like my wife will definitely pump me up and be like, no, you're, you're, you know, your stuff. You can totally talk about this. I think one of the things that's also different, I think moving from grad student who did a lot of like outreach and science communication to professional is recognizing when I'm speaking as an individual versus when I'm speaking on behalf of our institution. And when it's the latter, making sure that everyone is comfortable. Um, and that also it's really helpful for me to have people who are really, really professional communicators tell me when something looks legit, like this podcast, um, I'm not necessarily the best at like filtering things. And you probably have seen as well that Instagram, like throws a lot of really weird things in your DMS. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really, really wonderful that we have a communications department that I can sort of, have a good connection with and so that they can help me screen and make sure that I'm not doing something really stupid because if it was only up to me I would do a lot of stupid stuff so I have like my wife and I have like our communications department making sure that I'm like not doing stupid stuff so thank you guys <laughs> that's amazing um so are there any conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to there are so many I actually made a little list because I knew this question was coming and I wanted to be prepared because usually people ask me this and then I fluster. Um, Fair. Yeah. So yeah, I heard one of your recent interviewees mention both local organizations and then, so I thought that would be nice. So I guess 
What I would say is if you're keen on lemurs, you should check out lemur.duke.edu. Um, we are happy to take your pocket change and we'll put it to good use uh, in the stewardship of lemur care, conservation, and non-harmful science. But if you're also looking for some place in North Carolina, I would check out the carnivore. Nope. They're now called the Carolina Tiger Rescue, formerly the Carnivore Preservation Trust. Yes, they're so good. I, I got amazing. to visit there recently. Very cool place. Um, they're amazing. So they work with rescued carnivores, a lot of big cats that come from the illegal pet trade or the circus and roadside zoo um, community. And they do really wonderful work with their animals. So if you're looking for a North Carolina-based organization, I would send you to us and I would send you to them. And then I would like to take the opportunity to highlight some Malagasy-run conservation organizations um, that a lot of the U.S community might not be necessarily aware of because we see more of the American-based organizations. And actually, I'm going to interrupt you for one second before we do that. Sorry, but since I know you have the list, I know I can get you off. Um, We have said Malagasy so many times, and I realize I know what that means. You know what that means. But what is Malagasy to my listener? Malagasy refers to the to being from Madagascar. So um, there is sort of a debate about Madagascan versus Malagasy. And I read a paper written by a number of Malagasy scientists saying that they themselves feel that they're Malagasy. And so that's the term we then use to refer to all things from Madagascar, be that cultural or biodiversity. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, back to the thing about the stuff. Yeah, so I would like to mention just a few Malagasy-run organizations. Um, I think it's really important that we support organizations that are on the ground run by people from the countries we're talking about and not just support initiatives run by Westerners or foreigners um, in countries like Madagascar. So I'd like to mention FANAMBY, F-A-N-A-M-B-Y. So these are all organizations that your listenership um, can Google. Um, FANAMBY is probably one of the biggest Malagasy-run conservation organizations. They work in many places all over the island, um, so they're they're excellent. Um, Mahaliana, M-A-H-A-L-I-A-N-A. Mahaliana is a wonderful group um, run by Dr. Fidi Rasambanarivu and Elizabeth Toomey, and they're based in the capital city of Antananarivo, and they offer lab-based training to veterinary and research students um, in the STEM fields, so trying to understand how to keep endemic wildlife healthy and also domestic species healthy on the island, and so that's a really great organization. Um, another one is JERP, G-E-R-P, that is run by Jonah Retzenbazafi, who is like the legend of conservation in Madagascar. And he also does a lot with student mentorship and training the next generation of conservationists to follow after him. And there is a recent mouse lemur that was just named after Jonah. So you could also check out uh, Microsebus Jonahi if you want to see a really cute new mouse lemur uh, named for a Malagasy conservationist. Um, and then Ikala STEM, I-K-A-L-A STEM, is an organization that works to promote uh, women in science in Madagascar, so supporting Malagasy women pursuing careers. Um, so those are definitely places I would suggest your, your listenership. Uh, do a bit of a Google and see if any of those um, uh, could take some of their pocket change off their, off their hands. That was such a good list. And uh, I will put all of those in the show notes uh, so that if you are listening, you can go and look and and see them and check them out. Um, And then is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we haven't? Um, No. I mean, I guess like you wanted me to tell a poop story. Poop story. Oh, we're getting there. Don't worry. That's always the last thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I would just like... I often get asked how I, as a member of the American general public, can help lemur conservation, especially if donating is not something that I have the means to do right now. Um, And I think I would like to say that even things like listening to this podcast and just informing yourself about lemurs and then sharing what you've learned with like 
anybody who will listen to you speak is probably what I would say. Um, just spend as much time devouring information about lemurs as possible, not the actual lemurs themselves, but information about them. <laughs> and then just trying to spread the word about why these animals are so valuable to their ecosystems. And I would advise, you know, don't just focus on the fact that they're cute and fluffy, which they are, but these animals are such important members of their forests and the forests aren't going to survive well without these animals. They're seed dispersers, they're pollinators, they're nutrient cyclers, they are prey for predators. They are fundamental parts of their ecosystem and they belong in the forest. Um, so try to learn as much as you can about why they matter um, in Madagascar and then just tell everybody you can about them. Love it. And now it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. So I couldn't decide. So I'm going to talk about two things. And one of them is really droll and boring and it's science. And one of them is an actual story about getting pooped on by a lemur. Cool. Do, um, the, do the boring one first. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's boring, but I just want to highlight that there are a lot of things we can study from poop. And especially when you're working at a non-harmful research facility, poop becomes a really like sort of important commodity because there's so much we can learn about the animals from stuff that they just get rid of. And you never even have to touch the animal or approach the animal to get those samples. So my entire dissertation was based on lemur poop that I collected from the forest floor after the animals had gone and, and left the scene. Um, and so those golden samples uh, were sequenced for the microbiome of the animals. And that's literally how I've made my career thus far is just by collecting excrement and never having to touch an animal or bother an animal. So it's it's such an important tool for us scientists to be able to study what's going on with the animals, everything from their microbiome to their hormones, to their health, um, to their diet. We can get all that just from, from the fecal samples. So it may be gross, but it's really important. Now so that was tell. the droll boring yes. one. It wasn't, it wasn't boring. That's good to know. That is important. Moment. No, no, it's important. It's important. Poop is important. It is. Um, uh, did you ever watch the show Scrubs? A little bit, yeah. Okay, so they did a musical episode, and one of the songs was Everything Comes Down to Poo, and it was- it's true. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, all right. Tell me the, so, the other story. And I, I, I'm not the best storyteller, so I apologize to- your listenership for not having like a better sell. We um, have all been listening to you for an hour. You are an amazing communicator. I'm really Do not sorry sell yourself to short. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, this has been so much fun. Uh, so Marina and I and our team were in a rainforest called Marajeji National Park, which is one of the most exquisite, pristine rainforests in Madagascar. So go if you can. It's a very hard hike. Um, so we were in the middle of Marajeji trying to collect poop for science. Um, and so we were following around this group of red-bellied lemurs who are the most adorable type of brown lemurs. They're pair bonded. Um, they smell really bad. They're really fluffy and they're important seed dispersers. And so we were following them around um, and they're up in the trees. So really what you can see is like tail and a bit of butt. Um, and we're waiting for fecal samples. And I knew that these lemurs were seed dispersers, but I did not know the size of the seeds that could be dispersed. I think I like knew from reading, but it's, this is like an experience that is different from, you know, it's a real life experience. So I watched this lemur, like I watched the like sides of its butt just like open and out emerged this like the only thing I can describe it is it's like somewhere between a quail's egg and a chicken's egg <laughs> and like oblong. So this like yellow bullet 
And I remember thinking like first, like, oh my God, I can't believe this animal ate that. I can't believe this fit through this animal. And I'm like, oh my God, it's going to hit me in the head. (laughs) And then of course I moved out of the way. And then I was like, oh my God, where did it fall? I need that sample for science. So we're like digging around in the floor. We found the seed. And then I'm looking at the seed and thinking like, it's not going to fit in my tube because my tubes are like tiny test tubes. And so I ended up like with my like pocket knife scraping off the outside of the seed, which had no fecal matter on it whatsoever. The animal literally just pooped out only this intact seed. So I was like scraping sort of like the little skinny bits that were left and shoving those in the tube. And I ended up getting DNA out of that and I could sequence that animal's microbiome. But it's just, I, I think Marina and I will never forget this mental image of like sort of like the sides of the anus just like opening and it's like yellow, yellow, ball of seed emerging and almost hitting us in the head and my whole family and I my parents Marina we spent the whole day trying to think of like the analogy for like the size of the seed and my mother suggested kiwi that was too big we were thinking like quail's egg it's not the right shape but it's somewhere in the realm of chicken egg quail egg kiwi bullet that's entertaining I like it Thank you so much for doing this. This has been so much fun. It's been fun. I am sorry for my rambling. I'm grateful for your editing. (laughs) Have a good one. Yeah, you as well. Told you it was a good one. Told you she was lots of fun. I loved every second of that conversation. And I would like to say thank you to Dr. Green and to the entire team at the Duke Lemur Center. I know that a lot of people uh, kind of checked out the podcast and and gave their okay for doing this. And I, I really appreciate it because I love that facility so much and I feel so validated right now. Absolutely make sure you are following Lydia on Instagram at Lemur Scientist. And don't forget to hit up lemur.duke.edu to see the, uh, the webpage for the Duke Lemur Center. And for the love of Pete, don't forget, if you're going, make sure you book a reservation in advance or meet a nice lady whose husband couldn't make it that day. Either way. I'd uh, like to take a second here to say thank you to Laura Shank, my Red Panda level patron. Appreciate you. And uh, finally, I, I wanted to ask uh, Lydia, um, how would a a Shifok say the word credits backwards? <laughs> The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.